Hey, welcome back, everybody. As we close out a week, thanks for being with us. And we are in the fifth chapter, just starting the fifth chapter of Timothy today. Um, we're going to move quickly today after we get through the initial couple of verses, which I think are great. Maybe we should have lumped them into yesterday. I'm, I'm, this is kind of an odd place to break a chapter in some ways, maybe they could have left these with the preceding stuff. But um, let's look at the first two verses. Paul continues to give general advice to Timothy, and then he moves on to something very, very specific. So verse 1, chapter 5, do not speak harshly to an older man, but speak to him as to a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, to younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. So a couple of interesting things here. As Paul has anticipated a moment in which Timothy may have to, in the course of leadership, rebuke or instruct or confront people, he now gives some words on how that should be done. Don't speak harshly to an older man. This this is partly cultural. This is somewhat biblical. Um, but Paul says, you know, if you have to speak to an older person, even about something difficult, speak to them as a father. Treat them well. Treat them with respect. To the younger men as brothers, as an older brother would give advice. To older women with the respect you would give your own mother. And then very interestingly, to younger women as sisters, and this is really the only one he adds a caveat with absolute purity because um, in Paul's day, as in our day, you know, the um, relationships with the opposite sex in church leadership could at best look poorly and at worst not go well and cause much Trouble. And so, um, Paul here gives some just general guidelines for how Timothy ought to treat other people. I think given that we've been talking about correcting them, we have to keep that in mind. But even so, these are just general good ideas in terms of your relationship with people that are uh, in the community he's trying to lead. Uh, part of this is a commitment to transparency. Uh, it's just to say that Christian communities should be one. Uh, where leadership is is lived out at the highest standard, uh, and that remains today a important leadership principle. And you know, wh- however that gets enshrined, both in what we say about our policies, about how we treat one another, uh, but also in some of those non-policy things, just the the character of our conduct, the way that we address one another, the words that we choose to use over other words. I mean. There is a little bit, Clint, of an intangible in this as well. Um, when you come into a, a context in which you are the novice or you're the young person, uh, treat with respect your elder. Uh, on the other hand, when you're dealing with folks who may have less power, uh, maybe they're younger or maybe they don't have the same leadership position in the congregation, uh, you need to treat them with utmost care and transparency. And these are principles we still live by today. Yeah, so great advice. I think um, assuming Timothy followed it, I think it would serve him well. This next part of the chapter, um, easily the next half of the chapter, is going to sound in some ways outdated, in some ways perhaps sexist, 
Um, it's going to sound probably outside of our experience and, and hopefully not uninteresting because I do think there are some in- interesting um, aspects to it. But here's what we think is happening. In, the, in this early church community, um, the reality is that widowed women are very vulnerable. Um, they generally wouldn't have recourse to income. They often would not have much in the way of prospects to, you know, go and secure a future, particularly if they don't have a family or children. Um, it puts them in a very vulnerable state. And the church, from its very early evolution, embraces that challenge and embraces that people group. And so this early church community kept a quote-unquote role of widows. We're going to see that phrase. And what that means is that the church literally cared for them, that the church took some of its resources and bought food, helped them find housing, maybe had them move in with people. And the church maintained this caregiving ministry to this specific group of people. Now, There were, of course, the potential for abuses. There was the potential for people to put themselves on the list who were widows but didn't really want to go pursue other things. They just thought it would be easier. There were other opportunities for people on that widow list, women on that widow list, to cause trouble, to complain, to gossip, to do various other things that are going to be mentioned here. Um, That's not a knock against women. It is to say that that's happening in this place with some of these women. And so we're going to read this section that is deeply concerned with this widow's list. And the fact that Paul gives this a half of chapter, I think probably says to us, that this is causing issues. This is something that is creating some dissension, creating some problems in this community. And Paul knows that Timothy is going to have to deal with it if this church is going to make progress. And he gives him his thoughts on what that should look like. Uh, Michael, did I miss anything? No, let's jump in. Okay. Let me read this here. And I'll just read for quite a bit here. I'll try to get through it quickly. Honor widows who are really widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should first learn their religious duty to their own family and make some repayment to their parents, for this is pleasing in God's sight. The real widows left alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give these commands as well so they may not so that they may be above reproach. And whoever does not provide for relatives, and especially for family members, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be put on the list if she's not less than 60 and has been married only once. She must be well attested for her good works. And as one who has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to doing good in every way. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when their sensual desires alienate them from Christ, they want to marry, and they incur condemnation for having violated their first pledge. Besides that, they learn to be idle, gadding about from house to house, and they not mere, and then not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. 
So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, and manage their households, so as to give the adversary no occasion to revile us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are really widows, let her assist them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it can assist those who are real widows. So a lot there. This this is a big chunk, and it's an odd chunk for us. Some biblical scholars think that part of the issue here is that, remember, Paul started this letter with an appeal to Timothy about false leaders, about people who were going house to house and misleading people. And one of the theories is that these people were praying particularly on widows and single women, and hence some of the language in this list about the role of women, the place of women, the conduct of women. In this instance, that turns to a very specific subset, these widows. And um, interestingly, Michael, as we start, Paul draws a distinction between real widows and other kind of widows. And that may sound very strange to us, but what he means is widows who have other recourses, widows who have other forms of support, and widows who don't. And for Paul, that is a vital distinction in the context of this ministry. Yeah, there's a contextual and historical realities here about uh, who in the family uh, can have uh, the source of income, uh, dowries, and things of the sort that would take us a little while to get sorted out. I think what's worth knowing for the the substance of our conversation is that all of the scriptures, including the Old Testament, emphasizes the care as a religious duty of the religious community for the widow uh, as one of those who is in need of uh, a particular care. The fact that that is enumerated here is not surprising. Um, What is interesting here and probably challenging to our sensibilities is how concretely Paul is going to want to draw the sort of markers of that status. In other words, uh, Paul's not going to say if a woman is without a husband, then she's included in these ministries. He has some very strict ideas about what that means, uh, what's the conduct of that woman, what's her history in the midst of that Christian community. Uh, And in fact, as we saw towards the end, uh, expectations about how old that woman is and his expectation about what that would mean as to their life choices. Whether or not uh, we would, if we weighed all of these things out, uh, find them uh, helpful. It's a different conversation. I think the point here is that Paul, as he has been specific uh, about church leadership, particularly we just had the section about church uh, leaders themselves, uh, whether that be the uh, elders or whether that be the deacons, you know, he makes it very clear, this is what a life should look like. As he now turns to a very practical ministry of this congregation, he is therefore being practical. And Clint, you know, I wonder if you would agree with this. Uh, The reality is this is a specific congregation with a specific need of which you've already said biblical scholars can only guess at. Uh, If we have that in our minds and we're willing to hold that as we look at a text like this, what you see happening that is of direct impact is not necessarily a one-to-one sort of correlation for what a church in the 21st century should do with ministries for those who have lost their significant other, but rather uh, exactly how Paul understands our commitment to our families, our understanding of how that weighs into our commitment to our church. You know, the basic idea here is, hey, if you can support a person so that that person doesn't need 
to be cared for by the entire congregation, then that's a ministry that you should take upon yourself. Or if there's a person who can sustain themselves, and then the church's resources could be used to bless someone else, then do that to the best of your ability. There's there's a kind of common sense ministry kind of uh, idea in this, but you have to be willing to look a little under the surface to see what Paul may have been saying to a context that we don't understand if we're going to see it. Michael, chime in here, but I, I can't think of another scene in the entire New Testament where we get a behind-the-curtain look at a church ministry. I mean, Paul's given us some ideas on leadership. There are other places in the New Testament we see what the church is doing. But, But this balancing act here that Paul and Timothy are trying to navigate of people who are taking liberties or or possibly even abusing church generosity— church outreach, the idea of people on a list who don't need to be on a list. I, I can't think of anything else like that. It's a, it's a fascinating conversation. When, when I served the church in Texas, we, during my time there, started a food ministry, and it was just uh, anybody could come and eat lunch for free. And we were not far from the downtown area, and it, we the food was good, and it was kind of a neat atmosphere. There were some neat things going on and people there. And so we had a couple of local business people. They were either employed or ran businesses in the kind of downtown area, and they would come for lunch. And of course, there were some people who recognized them, and and the comment was, "Well, why do they need to come and eat a free lunch?" And and you could argue whether they should or shouldn't, and we we had to have some of those arguments. But that's the idea here: is that are the people who really need the help, and, and are the reason we're doing this the people who are actually on this list? And there there would be lots to pick apart in this. There's some very dated cultural assumptions. There's some kind of um, maybe even borderline offensive language about, you know, widows and and widowhood and age. But I think if we can get past some of that, we see an older pastor and a younger pastor trying to navigate how do we put the church in position to do its best work to the people who need it most, and what are some of the difficulties and challenges of that? And and I really, I, I I don't know. I can't think of another, I can't think of another issue where we look behind the scenes like this. I, I think this is unique, at least in what I can call to mind right now in the New Testament. And it, it's really interesting. It's fascinating that Paul feels compelled to direct Timothy to try and help him fix. Whatever it is that is broken about this, and we may not understand all those details, but again, for this to get a half a chapter in a six-chapter book, something is going on here. Something, these women, Timothy probably knows exactly who Paul is talking about. This We read this as very generic advice, and that's part of what makes it problematic, Timothy probably hears it attached to actual names and knows, yeah, their family should be doing that, or that woman certainly doesn't need to, you know, he. it's just a very interesting look at the early church life. A few quick things to add in 
to that, Clint. First of all, remember that this letter was read publicly and was intended to be read publicly. So you have to remember as you read a text like this, there's not only instruction to Timothy, there's also instruction to the community. There's a teaching that's happening here, a kind of expectation setting. So I would encourage you to not think of this as uh, two guys just talking behind the curtain about who they're going to let in and not let into the church's ministries. There's a kind of public nature to this sort of discourse. And don't forget, it's in our Bible. The Christians of the ancient church put it in our public holy scriptures. So they obviously understood this to have in it far more substance than just a particular kind of thing that needed to be dealt with in one particular time or place or that was bound to one particular culture. And that leads me to my second point is I think sometimes, Clint, we fail to recognize that the church is always a group of people doing our best to be faithful to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And one thing that we see here is that there are just logistics that need worked out by people trying to do their best to do the work recognizing that there are limited resources. And before the study, we were talking about uh, this funny thing where we're trying to get some presents wrapped up for Sunday. I've spent the last couple days working out the rules of what Sunday school kids can be entered into this drawing uh, so that it's fair for everybody. Some kids are going to be on this list and some kids are going to be on another list and we have to know why they're on one list over the other. On, On one hand, that just seems like a you know, a, a sheer amount of sort of administrative um, struggle or an administrative uh, red herring almost. But in reality, that's part of doing ministry is being people, being humans, trying to work out, well, how are we going to respond in this circumstance? What is fair? What is going to lift up the most number of people? What What's going to be the best use of our resources? And there is a little bit of the the, the just practical administrative form of ministry represented here. And so while I suspect that most of us won't find this devotional in the sense that, well, we're going to put that to practice today, um, and we are certainly not going to take this back and make it a church policy because uh, it doesn't fit the the tenor or nature of what ministry looks like in this place, I do think it instructs and informs a little bit of how the church is always conditionally trying to do the best with what we have and we need to have some grace and understanding and discernment as we do that. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe three quick things, Michael. One is that this is an example of what it looks like to try and balance in a in a church graciousness and responsibility, graciousness and opportunity. You know, in the same way that we try to help those who are in need. But if the person comes in and says, you know, I I don't want to get a job and I'm not interested in paying bills, that I mean, then we have to think, well, this isn't the best place we can invest church resources in trying to help. We're, we're ultimately not going to be helpful. And sometimes, in spite of trying to be gracious, those decisions have to be made. The second thing is, it's very interesting, he says here, um, they – these women could go on with their lives, not to give the adversary an occasion to revile us. And it's very, it's it's somewhat out of character and very interesting in this letter, the way that Paul looks to the outside of the church context, mm-hmm. 
and the ways in which they may reflect and evaluate the church. So the way that we live ought to look like ministry and ought to look like the work of Christ. And if it just looks like a bunch of people who don't need to be on a list getting free stuff, then then that makes us look bad, and, and it seems that that worries Paul. And then the third thing is, this is very meta, and I, this, I think, is a wonderful example of the ways in which Scripture says different things to us. I, I'm not aware, Michael, maybe maybe you are, I'm not aware of anybody in across the family of Christianity who reads this section as literal instruction. I don't know of any church that tries to maintain a widow's list and tries to put these things mm. into practice. I, I don't think we read these as binding in the same way we read other parts of Scripture. I think we read them as interesting. I think we try to infer from them. I, I don't think we can read this and just take first-order instruction out of them. I think we read them and say, is there anything here we can learn, not in the literal sense, but in the broader sense of a church trying to do ministry and a couple of leaders trying to be involved in helping it go well. And, I, I, you know, th- there are Christians who have this idea that we just read all of Scripture the same, and, and I think this is a clear, at least in my mind, this is one of those passages that is clear evidence. We, we really don't. That's really helpful, Clint. Uh, I certainly haven't been in every church, but I have been in a wide variety of churches, and I've never been in one that functioned uh, with this, even though some of those churches would consider themselves as having a very literalist interpretation of the Scripture. So I think that's really helpful. Uh, the only last thing I want to add is actually now going to be an emphasis, uh, because you stole the thunder. I did want to point out uh, this letter, I'm going to just pull it up here, this, this section, so as to give the adversary no occasion to revile us. I, I did not realize, I've just got to admit to you, before this study uh, of going through this book this time, I think the thing that has jumped out at me over and over again is how concerned this letter is about what the world sees when they look at the church, how the church should have transparent walls, that it does matter how we function because that has a way of being either the proof of the gospel or the, quite frankly, the exposing of it. That how many times have we seen already that we need to root out hypocrisy and that we need to uh, demand good character of every person in the chain? I mean, uh, clearly that's always been in the letter and that's my new awareness of it. Uh, but that is striking. And the fact is I, I don't think that a modern reader would have gotten there if, if we hadn't had it written here. I, I don't think our first thought would have been, well, that this may have had some impact on what the community would have seen when looking into the church. But clearly, that's at least one component of Paul and Timothy's conversation. And um, I think that's instructive. I think that there's a lot there in the meta conversation of this book. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Uh, I think one of the great Guiding questions for the church is what do we show the world, uh, and and what does the world learn f- about us by watching us? And that's a that's a challenge that is ever before us. So, um, full confession. Uh, under, this is probably not going to be on your list of favorite verses. You're probably thinking, "Whoa, yeah, this was great." Um, Hang in there with us next week, though. I promise you some some outstanding verses, some great content, some challenging 
discipleship kind of stuff. I, we didn't have maybe a lot of that today, but I promise you it is coming and, and hope you'll be with us next week. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Thank you.